Welcome to Lips on Life. I'm your host, Jessica Lips, and in this interview series, I'm talking to extraordinary people who are living their dreams. It's my hope that their stories will inspire you to live your own dreams. April marks the first year of Lips on Life. To those who've been following this series, I can't thank you enough for your support. For those who are new to these interviews, I appreciate your giving the show a listen. If you enjoy what you hear, I hope you'll check out more episodes. And if social media is your thing, I'd love if you'd follow Lips on Life for great daily content from our guests. Speaking of guests, I can't think of a better way to celebrate the first year of this show than to speak to Lolly Daskal. Lolly is one of the most sought-after executive leadership coaches in the world. She founded Lead From Within, a company that helps leaders make a meaningful difference in their lives, workplace, and the world. Lolly is an acclaimed speaker and writer. She has her own blog and pens for publications including the Harvard Business Review and Inc. Lolly's second book, The Leadership Gap, will be published in May. Lolly has received a host of awards from top 10 leadership blogs to follow in 2017 to top 10 leadership thinkers in the world. But my favorite of Lolly's awards is that Huffington Post honored her with the title of the most inspiring woman in the world. How fortunate we are to hear from her now. Lolly, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this. I like to get started from the very beginning. So where were you born? So I was born in New York, New York. In New York, New York, Manhattan? Well, um, in Brooklyn, actually, right over the bridge. You were this incredibly successful leadership coach. When you were growing up, did you know that that's what you wanted to do? Absolutely not. Really? Absolutely. When I was much younger, I think I drove my parents crazy because I kept asking, why, why, why? And even when they answered me, I would go in deeper. But I don't understand. Can you explain that even more? And I was very interested in reading and in philosophy. So when I got older, it migrated to being more of a psychologist and human behavior. I always wanted to know what made people tick. I'm a very curious person. I have this practice today that every morning I read a book a day. How do you have time? Uh, I have a discipline of waking up 4.30 in the morning, and between 4.30 and 6.30, I read a book because it really helps me during the day to be with my clients. So if I have a new story that I can tell, I have a new system that I can bring, I can bring a new idea. I think that reading a book a day keeps me current, keeps me inquisitive, and keeps me smart. A book a day. I can't get over it. Does that include weekends? Seven days a week. I love to read. Clearly. Even you're up at 4.30 on Saturdays and Sundays? Every day. Oh, that's that's amazing. Are your books all focused on leadership or motivation? What are you reading? No, absolutely not. So I have five or six subjects that I like to read about. So philosophy, psychology. I love biographies. I love poetry. And for a while, I was into quantum physics. So I like things that are interesting and something that I could learn from. What's the most recent book that you read that you loved? And what'd you learn from it? I want to talk about the book I read this morning. Okay. So I have a ritual. I have a lot of rituals, by the way. But I have a ritual that on my birthday, I reread the same book over and over again. For the past 27 years, I've reread The Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. I'm in the midst of launching my first big major book with a publishing house, and I've wanted to write this book for over 30 years. It's a big deal for me, and it's a lot of pressure. I'm feeling enormous amount of pressure to do it right and make it sizzle, and my whole life has been of service to others where 
I am dedicated to helping people. And now I'm having to ask people to help me. Can you talk about my book? Can you look at what you think about my book? It's about asking for the first time in my life in a very long time. And it's made me really, really uncomfortable. But I needed perspective this morning. And I was looking, um, if you walk into my apartment, every single wall is laced with books. And there's from floor to ceiling books. And I was actually on a podcast this morning, and it was a video, and he saw where I was sitting, and he goes, your books are color-coordinated, like there's a black shelf and a white shelf and an orange shelf. And he goes, what the? He's like, he's like <laughs> what is that about? And I said, because I reread my books often enough, so if you need a book, I can tell you, oh, it's the black book on the third shelf to the right in this room. Because usually genres uh, and niches of books, they're usually a certain color. Like all my Byron poetry books are red. Leadership books are white and red. Virginia Woolf is always white and a little gray. So it's like there's something that stands out in each book, so I know what they are. So if I was to put things into perspective, what do I need to feed my soul? So I picked up A Man's Search for Meaning from Viktor Frankl and... It just put everything into place and everything is fine now and whatever will be will be and all the challenges that I face will be fine. Was there a line in particular or a passage or a chapter that stood out? Well, I like the big picture idea more than anything else. And what he talks about is in whatever you consider suffering, and he was talking about the Holocaust at the time. So I'm not going through a Holocaust. I mean, I'm feeling challenged and overwhelmed by what's happening in my life because I want to do right and I want it to be excellent and perfect. But the message in that whole book is that we can find meaning in everything that's going on in our lives. And if we take it out of saying, why me, why me, why me, and say, why not me, and just be the person that can find something beautiful in everything and find meaning in everything, then everything is fine. Everything will be okay. That's so wonderful. So you've always been this inquisitive person. We're asking those why questions, and you've done that since you were a kid. Um, you went to high school, and then after that, did you go to college? Yes, I went to college, and I studied psychology, human behavior. I was very interested in what makes people tick. Why do people do what they do, how they do it? What are, what are their minds about? What are their hearts about? Always, always. Where were you in school, and then uh, what did you do when you graduated? I took courses at Columbia, and when I graduated, I I went to find myself. You know, I went to teach in Esalen, this meditation. I spent some time in an ashram. I just went all over the place to really understand Lolly. And I always figured if I could understand myself, then I would have insight into others. And it was my inner journey for a while. And then I ended up in Esalen. I taught that workshop, found my first client, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that was in your 20s. That was in my early 20s, yes. 20s. You say that right after college, you went to go discover yourself. What did you learn? I have three mentors in my life, uh, but they're three mentors that I've never met. I've only met them in books. So the first one is Viktor Frankl, right? He teaches me something beautiful every birthday. The second one is Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell taught me something so beautiful many, many years ago that in your abyss, you find your treasures. In any kind of your struggles and in any of your darkest moments, you can really find something beautiful. It's almost a message that I listen to every single day because let's say if I'm failing at something, I know that that failure will bring me something beautiful. And I never look at anything as, oh, that's 
awful. I look at it as a challenge, but I say, okay, what can I learn from this? And I think that was a great message to learn from Joseph Campbell. And then there was Carl Gustav Jung. He changed my life. He taught me that there are archetypes in the world and that in these archetypes, we have personas and that we have this common um, denomination, that we all want the same things, that we all are the sum of all our parts and we're not fragmented human beings, but we're whole human beings. And you just have to accept all parts of ourselves. And he talked a lot about shadow work, meaning that within us there might be some darkness and instead of saying we don't want it and trying to close it off, he said that what you try to close off gets illuminated. And so I figured I have to accept all parts of myself in order to be the human being as a whole human being. So he taught me about wholeness and he taught me to accept all the parts of myself. And if you're having a journey inward and these are your three mentors, you can survive anything and be okay with anything. Amen. So you go on this journey, and then you find yourself at Esalen. And what brought you to want to to be there and to teach this workshop? Was it because of the inner work you were doing, and you thought, "Oh, now I've discovered myself. Now I can share it with others"? Or what? What brought you to Esalen? I was asked to do a workshop. I did Landmark. I did Esalen. I did a lot of inner work. And then what happens is you just. Um, get like-minded individuals who you surround yourself with and they asked me to do a workshop. It wasn't, it's not like I've ever said to myself, this is what I'm going to do. This is who I'm going to be. I think life is an unfolding and we find ourselves in opportunities and then we just have to take them. So you were at Esalen in your 20s and you started your business, Lead From Within. And since then, you have gone on to coach and counsel the top leaders from all over the world How'd you get there? I mean, I think that's what people want to know. They want to know, how do you grow a business from something that's just the seed of an idea to something that's that's huge and where you have more than a million followers on Twitter and you're really sought after? How does one do that? I was talking at an event about Lead From Within. Um, and that's also came from an inner journey. When I was 18 years old, I was, I was really, really struggling. And um, from 16 to 18 was a very difficult part of my life. And I knew that if I was going to survive any of my challenges, this thought came to me that I would have to lead from within. And I would talk about what it meant to lead from within. And you have to understand something. This is 30 years ago. People weren't talking about leadership as leading from within. They were talking about leadership as greed and power and influence. It was a very different language back then. But my whole concept is heart-based, meaning that who we are is more important than what we do. And some people in the audience really took to that message. And there was a CEO who actually he was from Europe who really liked it. I was popular more in Europe before I became popular in the United States. People were more prone to heart-based leadership and the concept of engaging others than here in the United States. It's interesting. I became more popular there. So he was my first CEO. And then... Um, I got a call one day and they said, oh, we love what you did for this company. We heard that they were able to reach their targets and their employee engagement went up. We want that magic. I said, okay, but I don't think you're going to like what it is. And they said, oh, we want it. We want it. And when I came in, I taught them the concepts of lead from within. He goes, when are you ever going to teach us the secrets to making money? I said, I am. And so it was very interesting. But that's how it is. It's Most of my work has been being recommended from one person to the next or hearing about something in a newspaper and seeing a company is exponential growth and someone says, who's behind that? 
and the seer goes, oh, I have a magic fixer, or I have, I've been called the, the, the whisperer. I've been called many, many things throughout my life, but I've been recommended. She's the one. Bring her in. She'll change everything for you. Amazing. With all this incredible coaching that you're doing, with all these leaders and all these referrals, how do you have time to write a book? What was the impetus for the first book? And let's talk a little bit about your next book. What was the impetus for that? So I learned something a very long time ago. First of all, there's, I think, a saying, if you want something done, give it to a busy person. But um, I'm a very disciplined person. As you heard earlier, I have rituals. And there are things that I do on a daily basis, and I do them all the time. What are your rituals? So my morning ritual is to read a book. And then I do this practice of um, I have this journal that I keep at my bedside. And I, before I even get out of bed, before I start my day, I say, what am I grateful for? And so it starts off my day very grounded because I feel really good about all the things that I do have and things that are wonderful. So I do the gratitude journal. In the evening, I have this one practice that I've been doing for a very, very long time where I ask myself two questions. Lolly, what did you do great today? And then I think about the things that I did very well. And then I say, well, what can you do tomorrow to be better? And because I learned a long time ago that if I'm going to compare myself to someone else, I'm never going to measure up. And the only person that I could measure anything against is myself. And so I started this ritual and I really like it because actually in my new book, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, The Leadership Gap, one of the archetypes that we suffer from is if we want to do something great, we have to be a rebel who has confidence, right? You have to feel really good about yourself and know what you're good at in order to do something great in the world and to have an impact. But each one of us, there's science that shows that 99.9% of us suffer from this gap of feeling like an imposter who has self-doubt. And when you have self-doubt, it doesn't really allow you to create something beautiful in the world because you're always thinking, I can't measure up or I don't deserve this. And so I started this ritual because I don't want to compare myself to anybody else because I, I won't measure up maybe, but I can always measure myself against myself. So that's a ritual that I do. So it's three rituals that I do no matter what, read, gratitude, and measure how I can be better tomorrow. That's beautiful. Going back to what we were talking about earlier, you have this incredibly successful consulting practice. How do you have time to write a book and where did the inspiration to do so come from, whether for the first one or the second one or both? So the first one is is a little, it's not really a book, it's a little ebook. What happened was I run a lot of workshops and I work with a lot of clients and most of my clients like the little sayings that I say, they call them lollyisms. And one of my CEOs was like, I need to know that lollyism. What is that lollyism you always say from your heart? And I said, why don't I just put them all down and thoughts spoken from the heart in a little ebook? And you can give them out to your teams or you can give them out as Christmas presents. So it's a little ebook of just lollyisms that I say with my clients. What's a lollyism? Give us an example. Um, wherever you go, go with all your heart. I say that all the time. Um, follow your heart. It's all about the heart. I'm really big into the heart. I really believe that if we come from compassion, if we come from empathy, then we can get anything right. You know, so I really believe that if we're of service to others, we think of others, we care about others, how can you go wrong? So that's a big, a big message of mine. And where does that come from? Because it's something I actually notice. Um, when I look at your Twitter feed, and everyone should follow Lolly if you want to feel positive and inspired and to get great Lollyisms, and it's just it's just filled with hope 
and messages of inspiration. So um, how did you come to that place within yourself? It's a great question. And not just come to it within yourself, but also decide that you wanted to share it with others. I always want to share with others. I always want to serve others. That's innate. I think I've always been that way. Um, I really, because I don't know, it's a great question. I believe that um, we have a choice of what we say and what we do. And I rather be inspiring than not be inspiring. I rather um, give hope to someone than not give hope. So it's a choice to be that. It's uh, a conscious choice, an unconscious choice. It's who I am. It's who I am at my core. Do you feel like that's how you were born or do you feel like that's something you've cultivated over the years? I don't know if I was born that way, but I really worked hard on being who I am. I, w- I, I, I feel like I have a lot of layers and I've worked on all those layers. So back to my original question about inspiration for your book and how the heck you have the time. The thoughts spoken from the heart we talked about. So I just put together the lollyisms. But this book in particular it has an interesting story. I actually write for Inc. and I'm one of their top columnists. So I decided, okay, I'm going to write a book. I've always wanted to write a book. I'm going to write a book. I read books. Why shouldn't I write a book? Absolutely. I hired an agent and we sent out a proposal. We had a lot of people saying, we love the title. We love the book. We want the proposal. And then one publishing house said to me, Lolly, what have you been doing with your clients? I said, oh, I've been teaching them around a rethink system, a leadership development system that really works. It's magical. I said, why don't you write about that? And I said, oh, I could. I've, I've never actually shared. I've never written about it. I don't talk about it. It's something that I just do with my clients. I said, that will be a great book. Write the rethink book. And it's funny because I didn't go with any of the other publishing houses, but I went with this one. Why? Because guess what? It fit into my ritual where, Lolly, what can you do better tomorrow? And I would grow and develop more if I was to stretch myself and put what I do inside a book instead of doing the seven ways of being a leader or the three ways to answer questions or the 12 ways to do this, because that that was the title of my proposal. So here it was, stretching myself. And I signed with them. And Voila, a year and a half later, there is a book. It's funny because it started out a very intense book, and I had to take out a lot and think about what are the small, beautiful pieces of information that I could share that people can really get and implement immediately and not make it about me, but make it about others. And I thought if I was to be of service in the book to anybody reading the book, it would be a great book. Mm. Um, So tell us a little bit about the book. In the practice of reading a book a day. I found that there was a pattern that business and leadership books would talk about when to do things, how to do things, where to do things, and then Simon Sinek made why to do things very popular. But then being, you know, an avid reader about philosophy and a student of philosophy, I noticed that there was a gap. Nobody was talking about who you were being while you were doing all these things. And I thought, if we don't do the foundational work of figuring out who we are before how, what, when, and where, we won't get that right. Because the truth is, I can tell you, do this, do that, right? But if you're not ready in who you are as a person, you won't do them. I see it within my clients. So my book is very foundational about who you are being while you are living or leading. And that's where the seven archetypes come from. Now, We talked about Jung, right? They're not his archetypes, but he inspired me that we all have archetypes within us. He's also taught me that we have shadows within us that most of us don't talk about. So what makes this book different in two ways is that it talks about who and it talks about 
that for every who that you are, there is a shadow, a gap within us. And if we're not mindful of that, it can cost us in having true success. And so this dives really deep into that um, persona of who we are so you can leverage those gaps and do what you want to do in your world and in your life and in your business. I was reading the book. You have these seven archetypes that you've identified. How did you come up with seven? And because they feel, you know, it's a little bit generalized maybe. So how did you come up with seven? And do you personally feel that seven are are the only ones that exist? Okay, great question. So they didn't just happen. With coaching individuals, hundreds and hundreds of individuals, there are patterns that show up within us. As much as people like to think they're very different, they're not. If you talk to a thousand people, you will start to see a pattern within them. They'll talk about their confidence. They'll talk about their self-doubt. They'll talk about, oh, I can't use my intuition. They'll talk about loyalty. They'll talk about trust. There are things that people always talk about. Um, People talk about truth. People talk about being lied to. So... I studied this and I took notes and we did research and we spent enormous amount of time collecting data of what was the patterns that we saw within individuals. And then what happened was once we saw the patterns. Who's we? Me, myself, and I. (laughs) Okay. Okay, you. Good, good. (laughs) Great question. I'll correct that. And once I saw a pattern within individuals, you you know why I say we? I'll tell you why. Yeah. Because I really believe that I'm a partner with anybody that I'm working with. And I never talk about myself as I did this, I did this. I never kind of use that pronoun. I always talk about what are we going to do together? What do do we think this is? So it's something that is innate in who I am. And so it's weird for me to say I did this and I did this because those patterns didn't come from me. It came from the relationship that we had together. So that's why I used the we, um, just to clarify that. Um, so once I saw the patterns, I then identified what were the great parts of it and what were the gaps. And it was very easy to see once I knew what they were. I also wanted to come up with an acronym that people would remember a system. And I think life's complicated enough. And I thought, what can I do to simplify something that's complicated? So I came up with the archetypes and then I put them in the order and I said, wow, I can do rethink. And why rethink is because most of us think. Most of us think when we do something. But I want people to rethink. Rethink gives you another chance to get it right. And so it became the rethink model. It became an acronym that people can identify with. It became simplified into seven archetypes. It became so simple that you can find yourself in each one of these archetypes. Anytime I do this with a workshop or with a leader, someone says, how do you know me? How do you know me so well? I never tell anybody, you are this archetype. They usually tell me by the language that they use or something that they say, oh, that's me. I'm the truth teller or I'm the knight or I'm the navigator. And then they talk about the gap, which is I'm the fixer. So they tell me, I don't tell them. I would be a horrible coach if I was to tell them who they were. The thing is, is that the greatest coaches navigate through things and people tell you things. You don't tell people things. Although I wonder, when many people think about therapists, right, they always wonder if in a therapist's personal life, when they meet someone, they're evaluating them. And I just wonder if you happen to do that. Like if you'll meet someone for the first time and you'll notice their speech patterns or their habits, you'll in your head be going, oh, that person is this archetype. Do you do do that? (laughs) Absolutely not. Really? Absolutely not. I'll tell you what I do do. Um, 
it became a practice of mine to be very present. So when I meet someone, like I met you for the first time, right? I walked in, I looked at you, I was present with you, and I wasn't thinking about anything else. What I did think was this person will reveal themselves to me in the most beautiful way. Whatever they have to offer, I will learn from them. I wouldn't be successful if I was to judge or make assumptions about someone because people have layers to them, right? We all do. And so what they reveal will be revealed slowly. But the interesting thing is our shadows, our gaps, tend to be a shortcut to what's really going on within us before we even know what's going on within us. Unpack that a little bit. So think about it this way. Let's talk about what people are going to really relate to. So one of the archetypes is a navigator, right? A navigator is someone who's smart, some is practical, some pragmatic. They can solve problems. But there's a gap, and the gap is of the fixer, and the fixer is like... I know what to do. Why didn't you do this? How come you didn't try it? I did it last week or do it my way. And when you do that, you're arrogant. It's just a gap within you. People don't like it. People don't want, people come to you and say, I have a problem. They don't want you to fix their problems. They just want you to listen. So when someone shows up and starts telling me what to do, how to do it, when to do it, I say to myself, is that maybe a gap for them? A fixer has a certain persona. What is that? It's somebody who needs to be validated constantly, somebody who needs to please people constantly, someone who needs people to say, oh, wow, they, they're, you know, they're there. Sometimes they feel invisible, so they have to have presence by fixing everything and being needed all the time. You're good enough the way you are. You don't have to save me. You don't have to fix me. And so a fixer needs to understand just to learn to be okay with themselves and to learn to fix the fixer. So we talk about in the book what it means to leverage the fixer and how to do that. But that's a tell for me, someone, when they have to come in and solve my life in five minutes, I say, okay, what, what can we do to be more of navigators? So in a conversation, instead of having them fix me, I'll say, well, what do you think is more interesting? I'll start to ask more open-ended questions in order to navigate through things instead of fixing things. Hmm. Have you self-identified or, or can you relate to a certain archetype? Absolutely. So the thing about these archetypes, which is so beautiful, is that we're not one and we're not the other. We're all seven of them. Okay, you beat me to my next question. The truth is what's about rethink, they're situational. So sitting with you right now, I have to be the truth teller, right? I have to sit and speak with candor. But yet I have to be courageous, be the hero, because maybe I, you know, I feel uncomfortable or maybe the setting is not is not something that, I, you know, maybe I'm fearful or whatever it is. So at any given moment, we're all these seven archetypes depending on the situation. If someone is predominantly a certain archetype when they start reading the book or when they start doing the process of self-discovery, is it possible for them to make a shift to become a different archetype? Absolutely, because we have these archetypes within us, all of them. Let's go to the hero for an instance. So the hero is someone who is courageous, but we're all fearful about something, right? And so for the hero to stand in its greatness has to feel fear and do it anyway, and to be courageous, right? To be brave. But the gap of that hero is the bystander. And the bystander is extremely fearful all the time. So they might see something and they won't do something, or they might hear something and they won't say something. In order to leverage that, we have to teach the bystander that standing by and coasting in your life isn't going to get you what you want. So if you really want something, what does it mean to be courageous? What does it mean to be the hero? And so in the book, it teaches you what to do. We have to realize where the gaps are in our lives and figure out 
which gap are we really living in and which one can we do to stand in our greatness? So you're coming out with this book in May. And before we started this interview, you and I met for the first time right outside, and you told me that you are doing 200 podcasts to prepare um, for the launch of this book. And that was striking to me for several reasons, and I want to ask you about it. Um, It was striking to me because, A, 200 is a ton of podcasts. And here's what's really striking. You have more than a million Twitter followers. You are hugely successful. Yet you're still doing 200. It'd be one thing to do like five, 10, 10 would feel like a lot. So why 200? I'm like really struck by that. I reached out to 1,000. <laughs> what? Because part of what I'm trying to say is I would look at someone like you and think she doesn't need to do that. Right? Okay. So uh, something a little bit about myself. My whole life is about service to others. So touching people's lives is very, very important to me. To me, 200 is a little number. I reached out to 1,000. I'm thinking that 200 podcasts, 1,000 people per podcast, how many people is that? I want to reach as many people as I can. I want to help as many people as I can. I want to impact lives as many as I can. So for me, I'll be everywhere and anywhere because that's what I'm all about. That's that's amazing. That's amazing. It's, um, it's not so much about the number. It's about the impact. So if someone reads my book and they say, I found myself in this book and it really helped me and maybe I'm too much of a fixer and I should be more of a navigator, that in itself is is life-changing, is game-changing. Because sometimes people who are in a marriage always say, oh, my God, I'm such a fixer. I'm such a fixer. And, and CEOs say, I should stop fixing. I should be more of a navigator to be a better leader. If we can change lives one at a time, that's what this is about, isn't it? Yeah, that's really beautiful. So um, if I'm hearing from you, it would be helpful if people wrote in if they've actually been touched by your book. Oh, that would be the nicest gift. That would be so beautiful. And what's the best way for someone to do that? To email you or to tweet you or what, what do you what do you like? Oh, so because I'm there, I do my own tweets and I'm on Twitter by myself. So tweet me, contact me through my website, contact me on LinkedIn. Okay, here's another discipline. So I'm of service to others all the time, but I'm a human being and you know, sometimes when you give and give and give, it would be nice to receive, right? Like you're talking about, wouldn't it be nice if people wrote in and said how they were touched? So I have this folder when people write to me beautiful notes. I have a smile folder that I put all these letters on all these emails into the smile folder. And, you know, when things are difficult, like this morning, instead of reading Man's Surge for Meaning, I sometimes would go to my smile folder and say, wow, I am making a difference. I am making an impact. My purpose in life is really to be of service to others. And if someone says, wow, you've touched my... <clears throat> if someone says, I'm getting all choked up. Aww. If someone says, you've touched my heart, that's the best gift that you could give me. Oh, I knew I liked you from the second I met you. Really, I'm really touched by that. That's wonderful. So you just mentioned that you do Twitter on your own, right? That's that it's all you. And I got to say, I am totally, I have never seen a Twitter account like yours. It is going constantly. You you can't be going constantly, are you? I have a system. So the system, once a week, I sit and write my articles and I put them on there. But every single day I go on Twitter and the people that are retweeting my articles, I say, thank you. I talk to them. We have DM messaging. Um... Yeah, I'm on Twitter. You know, I make it a ritual to be there. I don't spend hours and hours, otherwise I wouldn't be able to run my business. But sometime in the morning and sometime in the evening, I'll go on Twitter and I'll be present. 
personally, you you work all the time. Do you have a family? And and how do you have fun? So I have three amazing, they're not children anymore, they're adults, and 26, 24, and 22. Okay. And they're beautiful, beautiful children and young adults. They don't, they're not, they'll always be my children, so I call them children. And... Um, they all do their own thing, which is pretty wonderful. Um, I was married. I'm not married right now. He said, what do I do for fun? I'm going to tell you what I do for fun, and I don't want you to roll your eyes. Is that okay? Absolutely. I love to read. So when most people, people like to go to the gym, people like to run, people like to go off for dinner. I love to read. My ritual in the morning between 4.30 and 6.30 is my favorite time of the day because I learn so much. I feel so stimulated in a way that I normally wouldn't. And I just like it. So fun is reading. I know I'm sounding really boring out there, but I like to read. I love spending time with, uh, I try to have Friday night dinners with my children. I beg them to come over. And um, I like my family. I love my family. And I love meeting great people like you. It's such a pleasure to meet you today. Feeling Um, is mutual. And interacting with others. I mean, I really enjoy that. If you're up at 4.30 in the morning, does this mean you're going to bed at, like, 9 at night? Oh, absolutely not. I'm a night person. So how do you, do you sleep? Not that much. Like, like five hours a night, something like that's that? That's a lot. That's a lot. Oh, my gosh. That's a man. You can still function. No wonder you get so much done. Many of my friends always say, you have, like, two lives. You have your nightlife, and then you have your day life. Nightlife and day life. What are you doing at night? Uh, you reading more? You know, I'm connecting with friends. I'm doing things that to have balance it's because all day I'm very present and very present with my clients. And when you work at the level that I work on, everything is always a crisis. Mm. I'm not stressful. Somebody, yeah, I'm not somebody's coach because things are going great. Right. <laughs> right. Right. I'm somebody's coach because things are not going great. Right. <laughs> and so at night, it's about finding that balance to ground myself again to start fresh in the morning. This show is about people who are living their dreams. Do you feel that you are living yours? You know, that's a great question. I I don't think about as my life as a dream, but I think of my life as being purposeful. And if you were to ask me, do I feel like I'm on purpose with my life? Absolutely. Um, You know, dreams, I think they're great and they're beautiful and they're wonderful. But I try not to have dreams as much as to have things that I want to accomplish. They're, I think dreams are like hopes. And for me, purpose and meaning is just more grounded and I'm going to take action and make it happen. So what else do you want to accomplish? Well, I've always wanted to write this book. I really want this book to be in as many hands as can be. And then I will feel really, really happy. Um, the fact that it will change lives is, I guess, is a, is a wish, a dream, a purpose, a meaning. This book is very, very important to me. It's, I feel like almost it's part of my legacy, and it will live longer than I will, and it will go on longer than I will, and it will be around for a long time. That's interesting because I think where I was going with that question was for the future. What do you intend? I was kind of thinking about the long-term future, but what I find so interesting and what I love about you is that you're so present, that you're really focused on this book and its publication in May and and what you're doing now for that and how you can help others. Because if you think about it, if I am excellent today, if I'm purposeful today, it creates my future. 
And so that's how I think of things. If I am doing everything exponentially today, it'll give me something wonderful tomorrow. That, that is interesting. But are you so present that you never really think about the long-term future? When I was younger, it was present and future. These days, it's more about the present. In our next conversation, I'm going to ask you about that. But since we have to end, unfortunately, I just want to ask one final question. So as we come to an end, what advice do you want to share with those that are listening? What inspires you? What, what kind of final words do you want to impart and leave us with? So something that I think is very important to mention is that when you hear the book that says, what stands between you and your greatness, some people might say, well, I don't have greatness. And what I want to say to everybody that's listening is, is that greatness is a destiny that's available to anyone. And the truth is, we just have to make that choice. And if people can really take that in and make that choice, then things will unfold in the most magical way. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time and for your insights and your inspiration. People, this book is great. Go get it. And, and so are you, Lolly. Just thank you so much. Thank you so much. This is Jessica Lips with Lips on Life. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.